Hi, this is Warren Valdmanis, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Warren Valdmanis. Warren leads a social impact fund that invests in the American workforce. He was previously a managing director with Bain Capital's Social Impact Fund, and before that, invested with Bain Capital's private equity team for over a decade. He grew up in Canada and has lived and worked in Australia, Chile, France, Hong Kong, Japan, South Africa, and the United States. Warren studied economics at Dartmouth College and earned his MBA from Harvard B School. He lives with his wife, Kristen, and four children in Portland, Maine. He's here to talk about his book, Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism, and his co-author, Michael O'Leary, was a guest on an earlier episode. Welcome, Warren. Hi, Bill, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. One thing I like to hear from people who appear on the show is when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I was fortunate to have a lot of folks around me who interested me and inspired me, but the first name that comes to mind is a man by the name of Doug Peets, who was my debating teacher in high school. And he was someone who taught me, you know, the, first of all, the power of rigorous argument and inquiry, which uh, is something that I've carried with me since those early days debating, uh, starting in seventh grade. Um, but also, I think the art of persuasion and you know, what, you know, how to get um, your point across uh, clearly. And I owe him a lot. For teaching me those things. And, and I think I've benefited a lot through the years, uh, thinking back to, frankly, to tools that I learned way, way, way back then. Warren, can you recall a time when you were making an argument, either in a competition or even for a job or some other big decision, maybe asking a girl to go out, and you found yourself using some lesson that Mr. Peets had taught you? Well, it's interesting. One of the more important things that he actually taught me was that he taught me the power of doing things the right way and being happy with whatever outcome happens once you had done them that way. And I remember losing, I think I lost my last, uh, you know, my last tournament under his tutelage. And, and I was upset about that. We lost to some rivals. And at the end, he said, did you do everything that you wanted? Did you prepare the right way? Did you deliver it the right way? And I said, yeah. And then he said, well, you, you should be really proud. You know, the outcome being less important than doing all the things that you could to, uh, to make it your best. And I really feel like uh, that has helped me a lot to deal with life's various uh, twists and turns, uh, to focus on what's controllable and to let the rest take care of itself, which it, which it generally does. And also to internalize that intrinsic benefit and sense of pride in doing your best and knowing that you gave your best in any endeavor. Certainly. And, um, and I feel that more and more as I've been able to align my work more with my my social interests, frankly. And that's a beautiful segue into citizen capitalism. Help us out and start by defining what is citizen capitalism, and is it only for people who have millions invested in the stock market? Well, first of all, citizen capitalism is for everybody, and that's uh, that's part of the reason why we call it citizen capitalism. And and really, what citizen capitalism is is where you look at our capitalist system, which has created a lot of good for a lot of people, through the lens of where does the social intersect with the commercial? In other words, how can we create a system where the prosperity of the various actors in our, in our, in our capitalist economy is driven by 
uh, creating a pie that's bigger for everybody. And so it's it's really just a different lens to look at and to approach uh, you know a system that has worked really well over over a long period of time, although certainly is showing some of its frailties uh, to, you know, today. Many people upon hearing this will initially say, well, you can't have both social good as well as high rates of return. How do you counter that argument? Well, I think that that is a that's a perspective that some folks have, and I think it's an unfor- I think it's a really unfortunate perspective. I I can tell you, I was briefly an equity analyst and uh, you know covering radio stocks, and I remember saying to my boss, you know, surely over the long term, you know, technology threatens the radio industry. Should we write about that? And his answer was, our our investors have three to six month time horizons; they don't care about that issue. And, and that I think that illuminated for me something that is a, a larger point. People often look at things in far too short of a lens. Uh, and that and when you operate with a short-term perspective, you often do things that risks long-term value creation. And I think that's a big that's a big issue in our economy and one that I think that impact investors are helping to solve. I think you know, books like ours are helping to, I hope will help to um, you know arm people with tools to look at things in a longer-term perspective. My gosh, if you look through the history of technology, there's always been a period of disruption before the long-term benefits could come about, starting with, say, electricity. The telegraph needed infrastructure to be created. Automobiles needed roads to be created before cars would really be more beneficial than horses. Computers needed the common operating systems and languages and a base of applications before they were useful. So I think it's important to have a historical perspective as well as that patience in order to to ride it out, in order to have the idea that you're really looking for that longer-term value creation. Do you have an example from investing that helps us see that a little bit of patience helps pay off? Well, it's very interesting that you you raise the, the historical perspective because you know I'm focused uh, in my in my current role on workforce, uh, which I think is the the most important issue of our time when you think of you know social issues as it pertains to people. And if you look back over history and you look back to the first industrial revolution, there was a period where new technologies displaced people like you know hand loom weavers. But America's prosperity in the 20th century was a lot driven by an education system that had finally caught up with technology. Uh, and we saw, you know, we were the most prosperous, fastest growing country for many, many years. And that was a broadly shared prosperity thanks to, you know, education beginning to cat, you know, win the race uh, versus technology. And so I'm, I'm a b- big believer that both you know, patience is required, but also uh, the right framework for thinking about the issues and the social issues that are, that are ahead of you. And you asked for an example. And I'll tell you just a very, very simple one. When I was uh, working in, when I first started at Bain Capital Double Impact, we invested in a business called Impact Fitness, which is a a gym business. Uh, and instead of it being a, a gym business that charged people lots of money and hoped uh, nobody would ever come, which is the kind of gym business that I've typically been a member of, they were focused on using the gym to drive what people really care about, which is becoming healthier. And so they decided to put that mission statement embedded into their charter and to compensate executives, not just on uh, what happened to this quarter or next quarter's profits, but also according to whether we actually were able to drive things like usage, which uh, is indicative of people actually getting benefits from, help, uh, from, uh, from, from a gym. And what was so interesting was that when you actually imbued that company with mission, all kinds of good things happen. 
workers noticed and we improved our retention, our frontline retention. We improved service levels. We were able to hire a, a great executive team. You know, uh, and so these are the kinds of things, these are the hidden, this is the hidden potential at the intersection of the social and the commercial that I'm so focused on right now. It's important with any type of mission or larger purpose behind a company to make that clear, because I don't think that a mission or a promise that sometimes is put out and labeled a, a manifesto sometimes for companies is really explained clearly enough so that it polarizes people. When it polarizes people and some people are saying, heck yeah, that's for me. And others are saying, wow, that's, that's kind of risky. I don't know if I'm uh, you know, going to go along with that. That's when I think you've really reached the level of specificity and detail that people appreciate because they know what they're buying into when they sign up either as an employee, as an executive, or as a member in the gym. Do you think that's also true? Have you seen that with other companies that you've analyzed and also supported? I think it is critical that a business articulate uh, what it's about very clearly and ideally in its charter so that it has some kind of permanence. And we saw the, the French food giant Danone do that recently, which I think is a very, you know, was very uh, admirable and thoughtful thing to do. They said that we are going to try to drive, you know, our customers' health through our food. And uh, shouldn't that be what all food companies are trying to do? But they made it explicit. And I think that allows them to attract the kind of people that care about those things. It, it creates transparency to their customers. Uh, and ultimately, I think it helps create a, a self-reinforcing cycle whereby maybe more companies will get permission to, uh, to think about the world in that way. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer of putting your mission into your charter and making it very, very clear. And earlier you said that a lot of this is for investors as well as for people who are workers because the workforce and the policies that are made absolutely have an impact on the longer term benefits. I think if you want to talk about health or eating, nobody eats well for a week or even a month and then gets long term benefits from it if they go back to eating poorly. Nobody can work out in a gym for three days straight and then skip the next three weeks. It's far better to go twice a week for a month. What other kinds of policies or examples have you come across that signal that companies are taking a longer-term view of making it a better workforce, making it a better place to work, as well as making it a better community member through its policies and practices and mission? Yeah, well, one of my favorite examples, Bill, is the, is the company Home Depot. This is a company that has built its success over many decades on the quality of its workforce. And actually, when, I, when they had a leader in the early 2000s who decided that, that they, he wanted to, to cut some corners with its workforce, the company's stock languished for years. And so this is a business that has learned that if you treat it, your employees well and you pay them properly, you're going to get um, committed employees who are experts in, in what they need to be experts in to be able to provide high levels of service. But when Home Depot announced recently that they were going to do things for their workers, they were going to pay them more, they were going to treat them better, particularly coming out of this COVID period, the stock market punished that company to the tune of many billions of dollars. And this is the kind of thing that, that, that really motivates an impact investor, because that is a, a short-term myopic reaction to a company that is really behaving the way it's always behaved when it's been successful. No one punishes Procter & Gamble when they invest uh, in a marketing program, but when we invest in our workers, you, you know, a company gets, gets punished. And I think that's a real, uh, a real shame. And so I think it's incumbent not just on the companies, but they need, 
they need investors that are that are that are thoughtful about these issues and that can support uh, long term actions that drive value but may cost may cost some money today. I think that's tricky, Warren, because you don't get to choose your investors. And I get the point that it's you know the, the investors are acting contrary to how the company has historically grown and consistently the executives of Home Depot were acting consistently with what created all that value in the first place. So I understand the perspective that the investors were kind of wrongheaded in looking to drive the company or influence it with driving down the stock price. How do smaller businesses, not necessarily at the Home Depot size and scale, but businesses with dozens or even hundreds of employees rather than thousands or tens of thousands, how do employers look to create more humane and balanced workplaces because we all have opportunities. We're talking about workplaces now during the COVID lockdown, and many of us are all working from home. There are changes that need to take place in order for us to return to work. What are some examples or exemplars of companies that are doing well in involving their employees in the decision-making, helping them understand what the risks and opportunities are and the trade-offs? Where do we look for examples of that? Well, I just want to say, you said that um, companies don't get to choose their investors, and that's usually true. But investors do get to choose their priorities. And you and me and others who invest get to choose our priorities, too. And I do think that there's, you know, re- there are responsibilities that come along with ownership. And I think that, that the primary responsibility is the ability, frankly, to think long term. And I think one of the best examples of ownership expressed with a long-term perspective is actually the first story that we tell in our book. The very beginning of our first chapter is, is about a company called the Kinite Mining Corporation. This is a strip mine, a socially responsible strip mine. And what's important here is that most uh, socially oriented investors would shudder at the very thought of something like this, that, that a strip mine could ever be socially responsible. But we tell the story of a family-owned business that thinks intergenerationally, that makes long-term investments, not just in its employees, where the joke at Kynite is um, people often retire at 65, not 65 years old, but 65 years of service, but also in, 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 in the environmental realm where you know, their, their policies around uh, remediation when they close a site win awards, uh, uh, awards that, that big companies would be proud, proud to have, and where their community orientation just generally speaks to a view that we are in this for the long haul and we are part of the communities that we operate in. And I think what's uh, one of the difficulties of, of capitalism is that as companies have scaled, many of them have lost that local and long-term touch. But investors and owners can help uh, to bring it back. And that's what impact investing, frankly, is all about. So if you had the ability to encourage people to think about their investments in ways that make a social difference, what are some of the initial and fundamental questions that we as investors ought to be asking? I think that the main thing that everyday investors should be thinking about, the typical investor should be thinking about, is are my dollars working to create long-term value? Almost always, when your dollars are working to create long-term value, something good is going on. And so let me describe, uh, there's, a, there's a company out there called Just Capital. And Just Capital ranks, goes off and surveys ordinary Americans and asks them, what is important to you in terms of what kind of social behavior a company uh, should have? And they've sort of surveyed, I think, nearly 100,000 people. Incidentally, 
the thing that always comes first is treatment of workers. And then they go and they rank uh, businesses out there, public companies, and they've created an index where you could invest in a set of companies that broadly approximates the market, but where the companies in that just, in that just index are uh, the best companies on the uh, dimensions that, they, uh, that, they, that, that, that they've, they've been told through their survey work are most important to, uh, to individuals. And that is a great example of uh, a way that an ordinary investor can put their money to work in the stock market while investing behind companies that are thinking longer term. It's interesting. How do they reach out to uh, their survey sample um, pool? Because I think to myself, I get the idea of crowdsourcing, but one of the things that's always made me hesitant to follow things like this is just how in social media feeds, the most popular stuff is not of interest to me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost contrary to what I'm interested in, but it sounds like they've reached out to people who give thoughtful responses, who share a set of values, including long-term thinking, and who would produce a set of criteria by which you can evaluate companies that would really be useful. How does that work? Yeah, well, they do two things. Uh, you know, the first thing is that the, the survey work they do is actually fairly broad based. So, like I said, I think it's nearly a hundred thousand individuals that they that they've uh, surveyed to date, and they ask them. You know, they give them a list of things and say, yeah, "Please rank which of these things, whether it's the environmental performance or treatment of workers or or other social social issues," and then. Uh, and then they have a, a methodology whereby they go off and score the, the individual companies. They collect, you know, reams and reams of data and then score the individual uh, uh, companies. And so using that, using what they've heard through their survey work and then the information that they have, they're able to, uh, they're able to rank, rank the companies. And I think it's, what it's indicative of is the, the kind of thing that's happening out there today that allows individuals to actually make better choices with their money and really behave like citizen in, investors. I think that's encouraging and something for people to check out. Yeah, I would strongly recommend Just Capital. I think it's a wonderful organization. What's your take, Warren, on how more enterprises are starting social impact funds? Is it something that they're doing, from your observation, they're doing to use as a learning tool? Are they looking to create offshoots that give them some political or media coverage? Or is it something that they're using as a way to, to actually do good by supporting environmental projects or make investments that really do make a difference? You know, it's, it's a good question, Bill, but I'll tell you, I, I, don't, I don't think the important thing, frankly, is really the motivation. I think the important thing is the fact that it's happening. I'm sure people have all kinds of different motives for, for launching social impact funds. But the main thing is it's indicative of a of an energy that's out there today that, you know, a greater focus on how you can really you know, do well by doing good and, and, and how you can actually investigate this intersection, this, the power at the intersection of the social and the commercial. And so for whatever it is that's motivating it, I think it's very promising. And while the field is very young, I do think that there are good things beginning to happen there. The challenge is going to be uh, whether we can scale those things, whether we can get the best practices that we're learning about in the in, in microcosm in the impact uh, investment world and scale them into the broader economy. I think that's the, the big challenge. There are so many things that need to change from basic education to energy to treatment of workers. What do you see as the order to think about things in terms of drivers? where you're picking, the, you're picking and, and actually putting your vote behind 
different funds or different companies based upon what are more fundamental drivers in the industry so that it actually leads to change in other industries and has that positive ripple effect. What are some of those fundamental companies we should be looking at? Well, I'll tell you, if in, in, in the world of impact investing, in the, in the world of sort of socially oriented investing, there's, there's a pretty clear dividing line between things that affect the planet and things that affect people. You know, in, in my current role, my primary focus is people. And when you look at the issues that affect people, inequality, diseases of despair, these things, when you look closely at pretty much any issue that affects people, at its root, you find issues in the workforce economy. You find that inequality is largely a function of the fact that there are fewer middle skills jobs today, fewer middle skills employed individuals in the economy today than there were 40 years ago. There's been a polarization of the workforce economy, a big driver of inequality. If you go and read uh, the Kaiser Foundation's report on the social determinants of health, what is it that makes people healthy or unhealthy? The first thing that they reference is not healthcare access, it's jobs. And so uh, jobs and the financial security that goes along with having a good job and the dignity and the hope that goes along with having a career path and the sense of mission that motivates someone who's working at a place, you know, doing work that they feel like is worth doing, all of those things to me are fundamental. We spend so much time in our economy focused on the demand side. What can people buy? But we spend much less time fo focusing on how do we make people feel and, and in fact be productive? And so to me, that's a, that is a big, uh, there are lots of important issues out there, but that's one that has been too often ignored and I think is a big source of opportunity. Where can people go to read blogs or sign up for newsletters or look for other sources that occur in this area to keep educating ourselves in this, in this realm? You know, there are, I mean, there are lots of good sources, I would say. I mean, depending on where you're coming from, if you're interested in social impact from, a, you know, from an investor's perspective, there's a you know, great site called Impact Alpha, for example. You know, the, I'd say there's, there's, there's lots, there are quite a few good sources out there. But what I will tell you, Bill, and the important thing here, and the reason, frankly, why we wrote Accountable is that there are so many different efforts out there at capitalist reform broadly, ESG. CSR, you know, impact investing, divestment. I mean, there's a, a, a huge list of things that people out there are doing to try to improve capitalism. But there's very few books or articles or sources that talk about how to bring all those things together to truly create a better world. A lot of those efforts are motivated by people wanting to feel good about what they do each day, which is a perfectly reasonable and frankly, a very valuable thing. But but when but in terms of bringing it all together, what is this all going to mean for the future? You know, frankly, the, part of the reason why we wrote the book Accountable is because we couldn't find a source to help us think about those issues, and so we decided to write one. Warren, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? I am. Great. So earlier we talked about person who inspired you growing up, and you talked about Mr. Pete's your debate teacher. When you were in school, what was a song that inspired you? A song. Well, there were, I'm trying to remember the name of the song, but uh, the, you know, uh, there was a musician called Steve Earle, who was the first person to bring mandolin into rock and roll. And I thought that was so cool that I decided to learn to play the mandolin, uh, which I play to this day. And if you could put a slogan about your work on a billboard that every key stakeholder or decision maker had to read each morning, what would it say? 
It would say one of my favorite quotes is from President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, when he said that the greatest gift by far that life has to offer is the chance uh, to work hard at work worth doing. And in the last six months, what's the best $100 or so purchase that you've made? That is a very difficult one, but I would probably say the small set of barbells that uh, that I brought home so that I could uh, so that I could work out at work out at home during the time of COVID. It's important to make your your money work hard and your muscles work hard, right? <laughs> That's right. And what would you say is the most important habits, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I'll tell you, I for some reason I found it harder uh, in this uh, in this uh, in this strange time we're in to do my yoga and meditation practice in the mornings, which I used to do pretty religiously when I was going to work outside of the home. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but, uh, but it's something I'd like to take up again. So when you talk about social impact investing with people, what's one of the biggest misunderstandings they have? I think that the biggest misunderstanding that people have about social impact investing is that it's about the direct good that's done at the individual companies. I think that that's a really important feature. But for impact investing to be everything that it can be, it also has to be a guide post for others to follow. We have to be setting an agenda that fundamentally can be adopted by the broader economy. And what was something that surprised you as you wrote your book, Accountable? What surprised me was how disconnected all these various efforts at capitalist reform are. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, there, there are lots of folks that think that the path to a more just capitalism happens through divestment. We wrote a whole chapter about that. There are lots of folks who think that the path to a better capitalism is through higher environmental, social, and government standards. And we wrote a chapter on that. And I'm, I happen to believe that there's a lot of power in social impact investing. We wrote a chapter on that. But all of these things are being practiced independently. And even um, though all the folks practicing those things share similar values, they very seldom work together and combine forces, which I think is a shame. Well, Warren, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best today. You've talked with us about understanding that it's not mutually exclusive to do well and do good, and that it's important for all of us to realize that we have a part to play and we are playing a part whether we're doing it passively or actively, unawarely or more awarely, in taking into account where we put our support through our investments. And also the policies that we have, are we taking a long-term view and making sure that we are sharing that long-term perspective with the people we work with, as well as with the investments that we make? You helped us understand uh, the importance of looking at a company like Impact Fitness that uses its mission and its charter and makes it very explicit so that they can use that to attract the right members as well as the right executives who are oriented to and support those values as part of its everyday working relationship. And you talked about how it's important to make sure that we choose our priorities because owning stock and making investments has responsibilities of ownership. And you gave us an example about how they do that with the mining company so that people who work there don't just sign on for a couple of years, but they sign on for decades typically and are proud of the impact that they make through their work as well as their return to shareholders. You shared with us the importance of making sure that there's long-term value 
And wherever we invest, where there's long-term value, then something good is going on. And that's an important litmus test. And you mentioned resources that for us to check out, and we'll look into those. And speaking of resources, Warren, where can we find out more about you and your work online to follow up with this? Yeah, so I would direct you to our website, uh, which is accountablethebook.com, which is going live uh, later this week, and we're very excited about. And, and I would direct you to, uh, to our book, which, um, which we're, we're thrilled is, uh, is coming out on August 8th, 18th. Warren Valdmanis, co-author of Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you very much, Bill. It was my pleasure. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.